Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. I, uh, I just placed my order this past week for my private jet, and I booked uh, an orthodontist appointment in another city just so I could fly far away, because today we're going to talk about everybody's favorite subject, money. And that means by the end of the service, we're all going to be rich, especially me, since I'm the pastor, right? Uh, if you're a guest this morning, that was, uh, that was a Joel Osteen joke, a long-running, very hilarious joke that only gets more funny every time I tell it. It is not just a dorky, silly, stupid thing that I do. We are talking about money today. We have a couple more sermons in our Proverbs uh, summer series. Now, if I were to come up to you today after the service and ask you how much you make, would that be a comfortable question for me to ask? Who would be comfortable with that? Uh, If I asked how much you paid for your house or how much money you have in investments, would it make you comfortable? This tension whenever money comes up in any conversation, right? For all kinds of reasons. Why is that? Eh, Everybody wants your money, right? Because envy, because jealousy, because greed, because grasping. There are real temptations around money because everybody wants your money. Everybody wants your money. We feel it all the time. We see it all the time. The government wants your money. Uh, Your employer wants to make money from you. When you turn on the TV, what have you done? Well, you've turned a device that you paid money for on so that you can consume a service that you're paying for of some sort or another. And as you do, what happens? Well, you're watching something that is trying to get more money from you, right? Everybody wants your money. Everybody's trying to get your money. Even the ad-free streaming service you're watching is advertising to you. When you climb into the vehicles you paid for and get out onto the roads you paid for, you're not going to be able to turn in any direction without seeing advertisements from people who are paying for the air in our skyline to try to get more of your money, right? When you pull out your phone, you're paying a lot of money for that phone and for the service, and you're going to open up an app that you paid for or that you didn't pay for, but inside... That they're going to be asking for your money. They're going to be wanting your money. They're going to be advertising to you and wanting you to subscribe or download another app. Everybody wants your money. Proverbs 19.4 says this, wealth brings many new friends. Wealth brings many new friends. Proverbs 19.6 says, many seek the favor of a generous man and everyone is a friend to a man who gives gifts. Wealth brings many new friends. Everyone wants the favor of somebody who's got money and is willing to part with it. And we are all wealthy, aren't we? Whether we realize it or not. Even the poorest among us are not what the rest of the world would consider poor. Especially if you look at the scope of all of history, right? Uh, Would the poorest among us here today, this morning, trade air conditioning and refrigerators and internet and all of the things that we enjoy, cars, TVs, planes, phones, would we trade all of that to go back in time even 100 years? 
or 500 years or 1,000 years to be the wealthiest person in the world? We'd be giving up a lot, wouldn't we? We'd be giving up a lot. We can hop in our cars today and we can go to Walmart and we can buy food that kings used to have to wait years to get the slightest taste of. In our pockets, we have access to our own personal court jesters and court musicians, to the greatest artists and entertainers and comedians of the world, people who aren't just alive but who are dead, the greatest performances of the last hundred plus years, all in our pockets, far above and beyond anything anybody's ever been able to do before. The wealth of the world's knowledge at our fingertips things the scholars of Athens couldn't dream of having access to, thoughts, ideas, philosophies, theology, political thought, all at our fingertips. You want to know what somebody wrote 2,000 years ago? Pull out your phone. You don't have to take a trip to Alexandria. We have access to so much. We are among the wealthiest people the world has ever seen. We're also very protective of our money, and that's because wealth brings many friends. Those many friends rarely have the best of intentions. Part of that's because we understand money is powerful, right? Money is dangerous. So the wise among us are careful about asking about it or talking about it. And in church, pastors who talk about money make us nervous because if the government wants our money and the gremlins in our pockets want our money and the people who own real estate along the sides of roads want our money. If our friends and our families want our money, then our churches and their pastors want our money. Everyone wants your money. And that means money divides relationships. It divides marriages. How many marriages that end in divorce cite money as a primary driver of divorce or of the conflict that led to divorce? We have child support and alimony and prenuptial agreements and divided bank accounts to protect ourselves from our husband, our wife, bone of our bone and flesh of our, our flesh, everywhere, one, except in our bank accounts. Money divides us all over the place. Money divides us as a society, too, by class, which is the actual largest driver of division in America, in my opinion, not race. Race is a tool of class warfare, not the other way around. Class division so discord everywhere. Snobbery, reverse snobbery, which is often more intense than the actual snobbery in the first place, right? Proverbs 16, it is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Proverbs 14, the poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. We divide up by money, by class. Uh, Abe plays on a baseball team that draws talent from all over southern Indiana and northern Kentucky. And he's the only kid from Newburgh on that team. So he's the fill in the blank. He's the, he's the cake eater. That's the word. I, that's, the, that's what I want. He's the cake eater, right? There are kids from Henderson on that team, and they are the rednecks. I went to Harrison, and apparently among the people of this team, that makes me from the ghetto. That hurts my feelings. I had no idea. I thought that was bossy. The West Side, we all know, is the West Side, and we all have an idea of what that means, right? 
Evansville is divided by class. We categorize by class. Even when we come together to play baseball, we still categorize by class. It's no different in our churches either, right? Class brings prejudice, a sense of identity that threatens to become more important than our unity in Christ. That says no matter what we may have in common in Christ, there are things you can't understand about me. There are lines that can't be crossed, divides between us that can't be healed or, or overcome because you're from the other side of the tracks. Some churches are tempted to divide by class. James warns us against that sort of thing, except he calls it by the name of partiality. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, well, you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love the neighbor, your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Partiality, class, divides. And it will affect your ability to listen to me as I open God's word today about money, depending on how you class me. So, Thankfully, I get to, I, I straddle all divides up here. If you are middle class or upper middle class or upper class or upper upper class, have no fear. I live in Newburgh. <laughs> if you're middle class or lower middle class or lower lower class, have no fear. I went to Harrison. <laughs> I'm from the ghetto. I may be a cake eater now but I still get my cake from a cake mix at Aldi. <laughs> for getting fancy from Costco, pre-made. No, God's word transcends everything. Everything. It's eternally true. It speaks to all of us no matter where we're at or where we're from or who's speaking to us. Okay? So today we're going to talk about three lies we believe about money. I'm giving you the roadmap because it's a lot. Okay, Scripture has a lot to say about money. And a lot of the work of this sermon is figuring out what not to say. And then dumping 5,000 verses on Seth this morning for him to like, it's going to be a lot. Okay, Three lies we believe about money. Four types of people. Three don'ts, three do's. All the lists. Today's a listicle day. All right. First three lies about money. The first is a big one. We're all tempted to believe it, especially if we have any kind of sensitivity to the crass materialism that is rampant in modern America. First lie is that money is evil. It's a lie. Money is not evil. That is not what the Bible teaches. The idea that money is itself evil comes from a twisting of scripture that says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. 
But the wisdom of Proverbs and all of Scripture does not teach that money is evil in and of itself. Proverbs 14, the crown of the wise is their wealth, but the folly of fools brings folly. Proverbs, a lot of Proverbs, get wisdom, get wisdom, get wisdom. The crown of the wise is their wealth. Okay. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, written by Solomon, still kind of a proverb. We're going to be expansive today. For wisdom is protection just as money is protection. Wisdom protects you, money protects you. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before the great. Money is potent, it's powerful. It's useful, it protects you, it crowns you, it preserves your life, it opens doors, it brings you before the great. It's also dangerous. It's dangerous the same way that sex and pleasure are dangerous, the same way that power and authority are dangerous. It's also good in the ways that they are good. When God gives us a powerful, potent, and potentially dangerous gift, we're always tempted to think of it as a necessary evil. We're tempted to think of sex as a necessary evil. We're tempted to think of authority as a necessary evil, and we're tempted to think of money as a necessary evil. Throughout the 2,000-year history of the church, well-meaning Christians have sought to remove the dangers of God's gifts and his most powerful gifts simply by getting rid of them and removing the gifts. If you're spiritual, you shouldn't pursue sex. You shouldn't pursue marriage. You shouldn't pursue influence and leadership. And you shouldn't pursue money. If you're going to be especially spiritual and be a leader of God's people, you can't have any of them. You have to take a vow of poverty, a vow of chastity. But God made us as men and women and told us to be fruitful and multiply and to fill and subdue the earth and to exercise dominion over it all. And those things are at the heart of how God designed us to be and how he made the world to work. Most of our lives can be boiled down to those three things, the pursuit of dominion, the pursuit of wealth, the pursuit of sex, and the fruit that accrues to those who obtain those gifts, authority, money, children, all things about how God designed the world to be and how he designed it to work. Is it Christian to give up on God's design and declare it to be evil? It's not. It's not. Is it Christian to treat God's good gifts as a necessary evil? We just have to feel bad enough about it. No. If we're commanded to seek wisdom, and the crown of wisdom is wealth, and wisdom tends to lead to wealth, it's not something to be despised. Doesn't make wealth less dangerous. Something to be careful about and cautious about, but not something to be despised. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. If you leave an inheritance to your children and the inheritance is intrinsically evil, you're not a good father. But the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. It does not honor God to act like his gifts are evil. We do that to our own peril. Money, if money is a protection for our lives, we do well to get it. No man gives up his protections and advantages if he's wise. Money is not evil. It is a tool. Okay, that's lie number one. Lie number two is that money is happiness. Although I also thought about making it that money isn't happiness. Because it's all complicated. 
I bet everyone agrees with the following statement. Money can't buy happiness. Everybody agree? Anybody disagree? How about love? Money can't buy me love. Okay, let me ask a question. Would it make a difference to your happiness if an earthquake swallowed up all our cars in the parking lot? Would it? It would. Let's be honest. Let's not be too spiritual. Okay, let's be real. If while we're in here, there's an earthquake and a void opens up in the parking lot, all our cars get swallowed up. Would it make some difference to our happiness on some level? Yes, we would not be happy about that. What if your AC went out today? It's been hot. What if you lost your job? Would it impact your happiness? Proverbs 23, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for it suddenly sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Ecclesiastes 10, men prepare a meal for enjoyment, and wine makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything. Ecclesiastes 5, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. Okay. Money's an answer to everything. Except that it's not. Does money make us happy? Uh, Well, men prepare a meal for enjoyment and wine makes life merry and money is the answer to everything. Okay, so yeah, I guess. Also, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. So also know what's going on. This tension here, right? And it's real tension. It's tension that we try to resolve by making our own distinctions. For example, we try to draw distinctions between words like happiness and joy. Happiness is superficial. Money makes me happy. Joy is deep. It doesn't give me joy. Money makes me happy. Superficial, light. It doesn't give me joy. It's deep, spiritual. Uh, I think that's, uh, in case you can't tell, silly. I think it's a very silly way of thinking and a very silly way of talking, and I don't think it's a biblical way of thinking or talking. Okay? A lot of those distinctions, types of distinctions, are arbitrary. The reality is there are ways that money does contribute to our happiness because it's better to have a house than not have a house. It's better to have air conditioning than to not have air conditioning. It's better to have financial freedom than debt. All of these are ways we pursue making our lives better and have in obtaining them the freedom to help make the lives of those around us better. And we want to make our lives better and the lives of others better because we believe and trust that doing so will make ourselves and other people happier. Right? Otherwise, let's not give to the poor at all. What are we doing? We're giving them a curse. Let's not try to help anybody. All we can do is make them miserable and tempt them to evil. They don't know how good they have it. The fact is, trying to make that kind of a distinction is really just trying to make space for the fact that we're emotionally complex creatures and we can experience different emotions in different degrees and we can experience more emotions than one at the same time. Right? Isn't that all that we're trying to do there? We're still caught up in, well, all that does is bring us back to the bigger question, which is, does pursuing money for the sake of happiness actually work? 
And of course, on one level, the answer is no. Money can't buy us happiness. We need things that are deeper than that. We want a happiness that doesn't depend on air conditioning. And yet we're still caught up in the pursuit of happiness that involves the pursuit of wealth because it is complicated. We know on the one hand, deep down, the answer is no. And on the other hand, the answer is yes. Men prepare a meal for enjoyment. Wine makes life merry. Money's the answer to everything. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money or he who loves abundance with its income. Problem is, we're material creatures living in a material environment. Wish there was a catchier way of framing that. (laughs) Something that would work in a song. Anybody have any ideas how that might go? (laughs) We're material, right? We're flesh and bone and blood. That means we have material joys and pleasures in this life, and wealth is a means to those ends. But we're more than that. We're not just material. That means we have deeper needs than material needs and deeper problems than material problems. And life has deeper joys than the joys that the things of this world can offer us. If we don't get things right with our souls, the things of this earth can't do much about it. We have consciences that are afflicted with sin. We're made to know and walk with God. We're made for relationships. We have real spiritual, emotional needs and problems that money can't solve. And when we have real deep spiritual joys, the things of this world can't touch them. The pains and sufferings and trials we face are only skin deep. And there is a well of joy and happiness that can transcend them. It's complicated. It's complex because we're complex emotional creatures. We're not like Ron Weasley who has the emotional range of a teaspoon. We hold multiple things in tension. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. We live in tension. We live in tension. We talk out both sides of our mouths. That's because we have two mouths and two bellies. We have to be careful with each of them. They don't have to be at war with each other, actually. Not if we are united body and soul and a desire to please God and to pursue God's kingdom and to put others before ourselves. So money's not evil, but it is complicated. Money doesn't buy happiness, but it kind of does. It's complicated. Lie number three. Money is a sure sign of God's blessing or of God's curse. If we don't have money, it's because God has cursed us. We don't have enough faith. If we do have money, it's because God has blessed us. We have faith. We're good people. Is that true? It's complicated. It actually is. It's actually complicated. This is why pastors who fly private jets to their orthodontist appointments have power. Because it's complicated. And they exploit what's complicated about how the Bible talks about money to their own personal gain and to the destruction of their people. We're working on it. Okay? How about this one? Proverbs 11. One gives freely yet grows all the richer. Another withholds that he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched and one who waters will himself be watered. People curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. Or this one, Proverbs 15. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Here's a question for you. You know the story of Job? 
Which was Job, blessed by God or cursed? And at which point was he which? How about Joseph? Blessed by God or cursed? At which point was he which? Like the other lies, it's complicated. Yes, you reap what you sow. If you are righteous and follow biblical principles, the world God has made is designed to reward you with fruit. And that fruit translates to wealth. And if you don't honor the way God has made the world, the world God has made is designed to punish you with poverty. But things happen. The hardworking, wealthy man faces a famine or a fire. The poor, lazy man plays and wins the lottery. Things get inverted. Quick question. Do you know the percentage of lottery winners that file for bankruptcy? It's crazy high. Or professional athletes? Or pop stars? People who come into money quickly because of luck or some highly specialized skill set? Their earning potential outstrips their wisdom. And they go bankrupt. They got money, but they never got wisdom. The wisdom it takes to build wealth is the wisdom it takes to keep wealth. If you don't have one, you'll never have the other. At least not for long. If you get wisdom, though, you will have the tools you need to build generational wealth, even if you face many setbacks and start in a hole. That's just true. That's what Proverbs teaches. You can start now, no matter what hole you're in, you just have to have a low time preference. You have to be willing to think beyond your own lifetime. You have to sow so that you can reap. So is having money a sign of God's blessing and not having it a sign of God's curse? Abraham was rich. Isaac was rich. Jacob was rich. Joseph was not until he was. Job was, then he was not, then he was. Jesus was rich, but for our sakes, he became poor. He lived his whole life poor. He was born poor, he lived poor, he died poor. It's complicated, isn't it? So those are the three lies we're tempted to believe about money. We feel tension about money for those reasons and maybe more. It's complicated. It feels like we're getting mixed messages everywhere we turn. On the one hand, money's good. goes hand in hand with wisdom. We should leave an inheritance to our children. It'll protect us and it will protect them. Okay. On the other hand, we had better be careful about loving money or depending on it because it disappears, it flies away, and it can't leave our souls satisfied. We're all tempted to believe all kinds of lies about money that resolve the tension. And part of why it's tempting is it's complicated, but scripture does give us clarity. The truth is treasure is a tool. And there's another important truth to note as we move into talking about four types of people when it comes to money. And the truth is treasure tells. It tells who you are. What the Bible teaches us is not that money itself is the actual question. It's our hearts. That's the actual question. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Treasure tells. Dollars diagnose. The big truth about money is that it reveals the man. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. How you spend your money, how much you love it, how much you depend on it, how you go about getting it, all tells about your heart. It exposes your character. You want to know who someone is? Follow the money. It works the other way too. Sometimes our heart will follow our dollars and we can discipline our heart with that. You having trouble with a sin or with gratitude or with loving the poor or with loving the church? Invest 
some dollars there and see if your heart doesn't follow. Struggling with bitterness against God? But don't lose the big picture. Treasure tells, it tells who you are. So what we actually see when it comes to money is that there are four kinds of people in the Bible. Okay? Four kinds of people. First is the ungodly poor. The ungodly poor. Whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. The ungodly poor are simply people who are reaping what they've sown. They are lazy. They make foolish choices with their money. They spend it on their pleasures. They go into needless debt. They fall into get-rich-quick schemes. There are tons of verses in Proverbs about not becoming this kind of fool. You can almost drop a finger in Proverbs and you'll find it. There's an ungodly poor person. Proverbs is a letter from fathers to sons. And he's warning his son about all the consequences being lazy of indulging his pleasures. And one of them is, you're lazy if you indulge your pleasures, if you go into debt, if you get into get-rich-quick schemes, your poverty is going to come upon you like a thief. Two, the ungodly rich. Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household, but he who hates bribes will live. There is a type of person who is wealthy who comes by that wealth through dishonest schemes. Again, you can see Proverbs talk about this man all over the place. He gets his money through bribery, through theft, unjust scales, the oppression of the poor. These people are manipulative. They use people to get money instead of using money to serve people. We see them everywhere, like Asaph in Psalm 73 from our sermon last week, right? And we're tempted to be envious of them. The ungodly poor and the ungodly rich. It's also the godly poor. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. The ungodly poor are wise and godly people. They're wise and godly people. They pursue righteousness, Sometimes, because we live in a world of sin and brokenness and, and misfortune, they're poor. They can be poor because they're coming out of poverty, poverty that is material and spiritual. They can be poor because of misfortune or hardship. They can be poor because they have made sacrifices for the sake of righteousness. They've chosen a life that sacrificed their wealth for service to God and to his kingdom. There are plenty of examples of this sort of thing in Scripture. Jesus himself is one of those examples. Jesus is homeless. He spent his life preaching, and not just preaching, but preaching the truth. And truth doesn't tend to buy you private jet planes. He didn't go to the rich and the powerful. He went to the poor and to the needy. He preached to them, and he helped them, and he commanded us to follow in his footsteps. He brought us the treasures of heaven, the kind that cannot be touched by the circumstances of this life. They can't be eaten up by moth, can't be destroyed by rust. And because of him, we can bring those same treasures to a lost, broken, and spiritually impoverished world. And we can hold them out to anyone, rich or poor. And doing that is the wisest investment any of us can make. So while poverty is in itself often an indication of foolishness and godlessness, it's not always. Joseph was godly and it got him thrown into prison. 
Jesus was godly and lived a life of service that kept him at the mercy of other people. Sometimes the sacrifices we make in pursuit of godliness do end up placing us at a material disadvantage. But God always keeps a perfect record. God sees and God knows. Ungodly poor, ungodly rich, the godly poor. Can you guess what the fourth person is? Can you fill in that blank? The godly rich. They do exist. The godly rich are people who have trusted the big principle of how God made the world. You reap what you sow. They've worked hard. They've sown seeds, many seeds. They've acquired wisdom, and with wisdom over time, they've acquired wealth, enough to leave an inheritance to their children, which is what Proverbs teaches good men do. They're not only wise and wealthy, but they're generous. In their wisdom, they don't trust their wealth. They see that everything they have is from God, and so they're constantly investing in more than money. Even with their money, their aim is higher. They're investing in eternal things. They see money as a tool to serve God and to love other people. They are always in danger of falling into a snare. It is not easy. If Jesus says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, it is not easy because our hearts. It's easy to trust our wealth. It's easy to have our hearts tied up in our wealth. That's why scripture has strong warnings for the rich. It's why Jesus told the rich young ruler to sell everything he had and give it to the poor. That was what was in the way of that young man following Jesus. And that what may be in the way of you following Jesus. We had better have nothing in the way of following Jesus, no matter what it is. So which are you? Where do you fit? What do your dollars declare? What does your treasure tell about you? What's the story that it tells? If you're a Christian in this room, the answer is probably some of each in its own way. So what do we do? We give ourselves to growing in wisdom and applying the wisdom of the Bible to our wallets. Okay, so with that, we're going to close with some practical do's and don'ts. And then we'll give Jesus the final word. Okay? Three don'ts. First don't, don't be lazy. Whatever you do, don't be lazy. In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. A faithful man will abound with blessings, but whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Don't be entitled and expect things to come to you that you have not worked to earn anywhere in your life. You reap what you sow. Would Nathan say, if you sweat, you get. If you slack, you lack. If you snooze, you lose. Might be how I would have said that one. I don't know. It's a little stickier in my mind. Don't give yourself to get rich quick schemes either. They never pan out. And if they do, they don't last because you've short-circuited the process. And you don't have the wisdom to keep what you've gained. You'll not go unpunished. You've only accumulated wealth for the righteous. That's what we just read. 
Two, don't go into needless, unmanageable debt. One, don't be lazy. Two, don't go into needless, unmanageable debt. Bible's really clear about that. Debt is slavery. Debt is slavery. So don't buy things you can't afford. Don't spend what you don't have. Don't spend what you don't have to get what you haven't earned. Be patient. We live in in an economy where some debt is hard or impractical to avoid. Okay. Let's talk about that for a second. Not all debt is evil. It is to be avoided as much as possible. Houses. Oh, I forgot to read the verse. The rituals over the poor, the borrower is the slave of the lender. We don't want to be enslaved. Houses, all but essential, right? Nobody wants to be homeless. Hard to get into a house without getting into debt. Not all debt is evil, but we have to be smart and wise about things, right? And modest. Better to be lowly and have a servant than to play the great man and lack bread. Be careful and modest in how you do approach debt. Okay? Three traps, three debt traps we all need to be wary of, though. And I'm not your financial advisor, so I won't pretend to be, but I am going to just throw these out there. Easy to remember, three Cs. First one, credit cards. They are designed to make you a slave. You need to be careful with them. Cars, assets that lose their value over time while costing you more are not good investments. Be wary of going into debt on a car. Not that you can't, not that sometimes it isn't justified. I've done it, am doing it. Be careful about it. College, credit cards, cars, college. College has to be seen as an investment, not as a necessary evil. As an investment, it needs to be weighed. What's the risk to reward profile? What's your return on investment? How long will it take you to pay it off? What are you going for? What does it do to your marriage prospects if you come out with tens of thousands of dollars of debt? There are positives and negatives, and you need to weigh them carefully. Three places we go into debt and easily make ourselves slaves if we're not careful. So just be careful about them. That's all. I'll step back. N-F-A-D-Y-O-R. Okay. Don't use people and God for money. That's number three. Don't be lazy. Avoid debt. Don't use people and God for money. Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household, but he who hates bribes will live. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Whoever multiplies his wealth by interest and profit gathers it for him who is generous to the poor. The world is full of people who are out to gain a buck at the expense of other people, and God counts it up. He sees and he knows, and he will pay it back. Don't use people for money. Okay, do. Do love God and serve people with money. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Money is potent and powerful and dangerous. It is a good servant. It is a terrible master. Serve God and people with your money. To work hard, do work hard, do be diligent, do save. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. 
Do work hard, do be diligent, little by little, and do safe. God first, taxes second, sorry, essentials, food, shelter, clothes, savings and investments. Little by little, day by day, step by step, low time preference. Remember, God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap, both for good and for bad. Finally, be generous. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. All of life and all of money needs to be seen with an eye toward God. We have to give. We must be generous. We have to invest in more than money. Money is a weight around your neck. It will soon be gone. Moth and rust will destroy it. And if you have it, you had best use it to store up what will last. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Invest in more than money. Invest in God's kingdom. Invest in people. Invest not just in setting your children up for financial success, but invest in setting them up for spiritual success. Invest in building a world that you would like for them to inherit. Invest in the community. Invest in the souls of your neighbors. So be righteous and wise. Avoid the follies of the ungodly. Embrace the principles of wisdom. And do so while seeking first God's kingdom. You will, if you do, build an inheritance for your children and your children's children. And most of the time, that inheritance will include some money. But above all, give them more than money. Give them a heart for God's kingdom. A will to use money to serve God and people. Or else they will squander it. And when they stand before the judgment seat of God, naked as they came into this world, they'll have nothing to show because they invest, they've not invested in treasure that lasts. Does that make sense? You with me? Okay. I'm going to close by reading the words of Jesus, which, uh, surprise, summarizes up everything we need to take away. So if you take away nothing else, just take away this bit from the Sermon on the Mount. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? The Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious 
for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Have faith and trust God. Seek first his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we see dangers and snares on all sides. We fear loving money and we fear not having it. Help us to trust you and to seek first your kingdom and to honor you with how we live. Help us to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven and to know what that means. In Jesus' name, amen.